my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we look at our calendar, we remind ourselves that today is the 11th day of March, 1981. And every time we open our history book and read of conditions in Babylon, say 600 years BC, we are reminded that the focal centre of world history is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the Gentiles who would like to dispose of the Lord Jesus Christ altogether are confessed to admit that fact by the very calendar that they use. Because dating in our calendar is taken from the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And history prior to him is dated from that birth backwards, making the Lord Jesus Christ the focal point of world history. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the focal point of world history, he's the focal point of the purpose of God with this earth. In the third chapter of the book of Revelation, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to the ecclesia at Laodicea. Verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, we read, Unto the angel of the ecclesia of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So not only is the Lord Jesus Christ the focal point of world history as the world exists today, he is the foundation stone of that new creation with which Yahweh is to fill this earth in the age to come. And tonight we come to commence a study of the life of that man. It must surely be one of the most exalted studies it is possible to enter into in the pages of God's Word. You know, if it were not for the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, all study would be vain. Everything would be empty. There would be no hope. There would be no purpose with this earth. So important is the Lord Jesus Christ that everything depends upon him. Christ is the most important person that ever walked the face of this earth. Christ is the centre of the purpose of God the beginning of a new creation. The whole of the scriptures are dependent upon the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably in some way Christ can be seen on every page of the word of God. And as we see, even the Gentiles acknowledge that he is the centre of world history. The Lord Jesus Christ then is a very important man. We believe the study of his life is of the greatest importance to every one of us. We believe it is impossible to rightly understand any passage of scripture if we exclude the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of Yahweh in him. The Lord Jesus Christ is set, forth, is set before us as the fulfilment or involved in the fulfilment of every type in the pages of God's word. In the Gospel of John, for example, the Apostle John impresses upon us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of the types of the Old Testament. In John chapter 1 and verse 9, for instance, we read, That was the true light. Well, we're reading from verse 8 to get the sense. He was not that light, speaking of John the Baptist. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighted every man which cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him or on account of him and the world knew him not. And so there in verse 9 the Apostle John points out that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true light. He is the genuine light, not the shadowy types of the, of, of, of the law and of days gone by. Not the light of the sun that shone forth upon the fourth day of creation, 
That wasn't the true genuine light. But the true genuine light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every man that enters into the divine arrangement of things, every man that is eligible for a place in the kingdom of God is illuminated by that true light. And no one will get into the kingdom of God unless they are illuminated by that true and genuine light which is exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ. We go over to John chapter 6 and at verse 32. And there we read the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, speaking of the manna upon which Israel fed for 40 years in the wilderness. He says, Moses didn't give you that bread, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ here is impressing upon us the fact that that manna that Israel ate in the wilderness was not really true or genuine bread. But the true bread which comes down from heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came down from heaven to give life unto the world. And so you see the Lord Jesus Christ is the true, genuine bread. He's the antitype of that typical bread upon which Israel fed in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of those types. John again in his 15th chapter impresses this fact, relating back I believe to, to Isaiah chapter 5, to Psalm chapter 80 and so forth, where in the Old Testament Israel is presented as, as Yahweh's vineyard. And it is, we're told in those places how Yahweh uh, planted Israel as a vine. But you see, the Lord, but, but that vine failed. It brought forth wild grapes. It didn't produce the fruit that Yahweh wanted. But now in John 15 we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true vine. He is the genuine vine, the real vine. That other vine of which we read in those Old Testament passages wasn't a true vine because it, it didn't yield the right fruit. But here is the antitype of those things. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true, the genuine vine, the vine that produced the fruit that Yahweh required. And so we could go on into the book of Hebrews where the, where the Apostle Paul shows how the tabernacle uh, and, and the tabernacle service was but typical of things that have, uh, uh, obtained their fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see, these passages show us that we can't rightly understand the Old Testament unless we understand the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless we can look into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can see the fulfilment of those types in him. The first direct promise that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And in chapter 3 and verse 15 that verse that's so well known to us we have our direct reference and promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking to the serpent but giving hope to mankind. The, the, the uh, record, uh, Yahweh speaks, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, or as the Revised Standard Version would render it, he shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And there in that promise of a seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head that himself be bruised in the heel, is a direct promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, we believe, is, is mentioned by type and inference uh, in pages previous to this. But here is a direct promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the seed of the woman who would conquer sin. But you see, how could the woman produce a seed of herself? The woman was helpless. Both the man and the woman were absolutely helpless to produce that seed. The woman Eve couldn't produce a child of, uh, uh, on her own 
Adam was excluded from this verse, so he, he couldn't help her in that way. They were absolutely helpless. You see, it was being emphasised upon them that they had to look to Yahweh for help. But really it was only Yahweh that could provide that seed. Yahweh would have to intervene in the circumstances and produce that seed of the woman. And you see, by very implication, that verse was a prophecy that this Redeemer would be the Son of God. He would be the Son of God produced from the woman. And now when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we find that twice, in each of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, we find two references to the fact that a voice from heaven spoke. Firstly, at his baptism, as recorded, for example, in the book of Matthew, at chapter 3 and verse 17, when the Lord Jesus Christ was baptised. We have the voice from heaven declaring, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It is recorded in Mark chapter 1 and verse 11 and also in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22 that that testimony from heaven was given at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here was a testimony from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Here is the one that I was to produce. Here is my Son produced from the woman, from the the seed of the woman who would conquer sin. We go over to Matthew chapter 17 and they are again recorded by Mark and Luke also. In Matthew chapter 17 and at verse 5 we read again a voice from heaven when Christ was transfigured before certain of the disciples. We read in verse 5 While he yet spake, behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud which said This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And again there is divine testimony to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the one promised from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, who would overcome sin, bruise the serpent upon the head, although he himself must be bruised in the heel. From Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 we're told what God's purpose was in this man speaking uh, in verse 21 we read and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. And so Mary was instructed here, or, or Joseph was instructed here, that he was to name uh, that, that, that the child Jesus, which means Yahweh shall save. The reason being, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the very purpose of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is that people, certain people, people described as his people, might be saved from their sins. And that's the very purpose of Yahweh in this man, that he might save his people from their sins. You know, to be classed as his people, to come within the range of the saving work of this wonderful man, It's absolutely vital that we have quite a close understanding of his life and work. You see, how is he going to save his people from their sins? Well, he's going to be a covering for their sins. He was going to die to declare the righteousness of God. That people might identify themselves with his death and be brought into a right and acceptable relationship with Yahweh. But you see, even more than that is required if a person is to be saved from their sins. Have a look at what the Apostle Paul says in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. In 
And in Romans chapter 8 and at verse 29 we read the words of the Apostle Paul reading from verse 28 he said and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, he shall save his people from their sins. It's the purpose of God in Christ that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So his people are going to be classed as his brethren. And the Lord is to be the firstborn among that, that multitudinous community that are described as his brethren. But you see, what, makes a, what uh, constitutes a person, one of his brethren? Being conformed to the image of his son. A person's life has to be changed if they're going to be saved from their sins. They have to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. The likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ has to be developed in that person that he might be classed as his brethren. They might be united together by common family characteristics. They're united together as a family as the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is developed in those people whom Yahweh has called out from this world to be saved from their sins, to be conformed to the image of his Son. We go over to the writing of the Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 we read there to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory. It is Christ in you that lays the foundation for the hope of future glory. So not only must a person be brought into a right relationship with Yahweh through identification with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ should be shining out of his life. Christ must be developed within us as the foundation stone of the hope of future glory. But how is this to be accomplished? How is Christ to be developed in us? How are we to be conformed to the image of his Son? I read the Apostle Paul tells us in his epistle to the Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 6. The Apostle reasoning upon the, 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 the uselessness of the law as far as developing the image of Christ in a person goes. He says in verse 6 of Galatians 5, he says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And over in chapter 6 and verse 15, we find very similar words. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, that's the thing that counts. It doesn't really matter whether a person's circumcised or whether they're not. Trying to keep and uphold the law is useless to gain salvation. The thing that is going to salvation, gain salvation is the development of a new creature. It's the conforming of a person to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ being developed in them, which is the hope of glory. And you know, back there in chapter 5 and verse 6, the Apostle shows us the power that he's going to work that change. He says, the thing that counts is faith which worketh by love. And what's faith? Well, faith, we could say, is conviction. It's absolute conviction in the, Lord, in the existence and the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's absolute unshakable conviction that the Lord did exist, that he, he, he performed his work and he is able to perform all that he has promised. But you see, that conviction on its own is not enough. 
It's faith which worketh by, or faith that is energised by love. It's when faith is energised by love, it becomes a transforming power in a person's life. You see, it's one thing just to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ existed. You might have unshakable conviction in that. But that in itself is not enough. That faith has got to be energised by love. And when that faith is energised by love, it becomes a transforming power in the life. But you see, how can we love someone we don't know? How can we love the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we be filled with a burning desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't really know much about him? That's why a study of the life of Christ is so important. That's why we've got to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ better. So that our love can be, he can be the centre of our love. So that within us can be developed that desire to be like him. But so that that desire, coupled with the conviction of his existence, can become a transforming power in our life. That's how the Lord Jesus Christ will save his people from their sins. And you know, as we come to commence this study of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to, we've got to accept that a study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ has got to be more than just an intellectual exercise. It's not just a matter of trying to piece together the life of the Lord in chronological sequence. It's not just a matter of being able to, 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 to speak off parrot fashion all the journeys of the Lord Jesus Christ. That might be very excellent if we can do it. But that knowledge has got to be a transforming power in our life. We've got to have that conviction and it's got to be coupled by our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that conviction is coupled with that love, then it can be a transforming power in our life. And, the, and that is how Yahweh is purposing to save his people from their sins by conforming them to the image of his Son. You know, and as we commence this study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just a matter of being able to trace out his journeys and know exactly where he went and, and where he was when he said certain things. We've got to try and look at the life of that man and we've got to try and behold the Word becoming flesh and tabernacling in the midst of Israel. We've got to see how it was that Word became flesh so that we might be moved by the same motives motive that moved the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be conformed under his image that we might have the uh, foundation laid for the hope of glory in the future age. And so, as we come to study the life of the Lord, we must do so with the object of developing in ourselves a love that can energise our faith and be a transforming power in our lives. You see, to behold the development of the Father's character in mortal flesh must be the prime object of any study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having then, we hope, stressed the importance of a study of the life of Christ, where are we going to start in piecing together his life? Well, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that there were originally many accounts written concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. The word there, set forth in order, merely means to write a narrative or to write a history. And, the, and the, the, uh, Luke tells us here, that many had taken in hand to write narratives or histories of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there were many records written of that life. But you see, divine wisdom has preserved for us four. Divine wisdom has collected and preserved four accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You know, four is a, quite a significant number. It's a number that crops up in many places through the pages of the Word of God. 
You know, we look at the number four. Perhaps it's just interesting to note that there are four points to the compass. There's north, south, east and west. You know, if we're viewing something from the earth, uh, something that exists upon the earth, if we view it firstly from the north and then from the east and then from the south and then from the west, we get a complete picture of that thing we're looking at. If we look at it only from the east, we only see one side of it. If we look at it from the east and, and, and the north, we see a little bit more of it, but we don't see it all. If we view it from the four points of the compass, we get a complete picture of whatever it is we're looking at. And see, likewise it is, I believe, with the four gospel records. If we were to take Luke only, or if we were only to read the Gospel of Mark and, uh, and dispense with the others, we wouldn't get a complete picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we view, when we take all four Gospels, we're given a complete picture of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given, at least, all we need to know about him. You see, not only is it, does it give us a complete picture, but we find that in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, mankind really were divided into four divisions. There was the Jew, there was the Roman, and there was the Greek. They were the three recognised divisions of mankind in the days of the Lord. There was the Jewish world, which comprised the Jews. There were the Romans, who, who were the dominant uh, ruling power in the earth at that time. But then there were the Greeks also. And we find mankind divided into those three groups. You know, when we come to the word of God, we find a further group added. There was that little group of people that Yahweh called out of the nations to be a people for his name. And that made the fourth division. It's quite interesting really because we find that these four Gospels cater for these four divisions of mankind. Now there's a chart that has been copied out of the book, the uh, Guidebook to the Gospels, which is a, a, a very good book and it's very worthwhile anyone getting it. It's a big help in the study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we notice from this chart how on the top section, which is the one we're concerned with tonight, we see how um, Brother Mansfield has, has, has listed the four Gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. He shows us from there that Matthew was written particularly for the Jews. Matthew was written particularly for the Jews. Mark, on the other hand, was written particularly for the Romans. And the characteristics of the books, if we were to study them closely, reveal these things. The Gospel of Luke was written particularly for the Greeks, whilst the Gospel of John is written primarily for believers. So you see, the world was divided into those four classes of mankind. There's a gospel record that caters for everyone, written particularly for those. Though of course, no one class could just exclusively uh, concern themselves with, with that one book and get a complete picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the number four is significant in other ways too. Not only were there four divisions of mankind, we will be well aware back in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple where the cherubim were, were in the holy of holies of those uh, uh, structures upon those cherubim there were four faces it was the face of the lion, the ox, the eagle and the man and that's the picture that's portrayed upon the front of the folders that have been given you and there are those four faces of the cherubim and we find as we'll see in a few moments that we believe these four gospels give these four different aspects of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, presenting him to us as the, the nucleus of the cherubim. We believe the cherubim really represents the multitudinous body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in the Lord Jesus Christ we see those four aspects portrayed of the lion, the eagle, the ox and the man. Take firstly the Gospel of Matthew. 
Matthew, uh, as we, we trace it through, we see Matthew was written primarily for the Jews. It presents a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. The very opening words of the, the book of Matthew are the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the opening words of the book. The book commences with a genealogy down through the line of the kings, down through Joseph to the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that the Lord Jesus Christ as the adopted son of Joseph was really had a legal claim to the throne of David. It presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel, the great son of David, the one who is to be the king, who is to sit upon David's throne in the age to come. You know, the word the kingdom is mentioned 55 times in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is mentioned 32 times. The son of Christ is referred to as the son of David seven times in the book of Matthew. You see, we find in material peculiar to the book of Matthew, the visit of the wise men to, to Jerusalem, to, to, to Bethlehem, to come and pay homage to he who was born king of the Jews. We find only in Matthew recorded the, 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 the vengeance of Herod in, in destroying all the young children under two years of old that he might destroy him that was born king of the Jews. And it's the aspect of Christ as king that is predominant in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, John's preaching is described as him saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we look at the other gospels, it's presented in slightly different words. You see, and so we find that the predominant feature of the book of Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. We find that the general character of the book is prophetical. You know, Matthew refers to 60 Old Testament passages as being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew emphasises that point that the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's writing particularly to the Jews, people who are educated in the Old Testament prophecies. And he's emphasising to them that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. We find that um, in the general character of the book when he's prophetical. Its theme is kingship, as we've seen. It sets Christ before us as the great king. It's based on past revelation, the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah and the coming King of Israel. The dominant idea of that book is fulfilled, as we've said, 60 times. Matthew says, uh, refers to Old Testament passages and says that the words of the prophet were fulfilled in, in the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as presenting the Lord as, as the King, we have there the aspect, in the faces of the cherubim, the aspect of the lion, the king of the beast. And Christ is set before us in the book of Matthew as the, as the lion, as royalty, as the king. You see, when we come to the book of Mark, for example, the gospel of Mark, we find that the, Mark is, the whole character of Mark is quite different. There's no genealogy, there's no real formal introduction. We're straight into the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that Mark, who as we've noted, wrote for Romans, Mark is particularly concerned with the mighty works that Jesus did. He presents him as a man of action and power. And so he presents Jesus as all-powerful, as a man of action and power. The general character of his book is practical. He's most concerned with the things that Jesus did. Never mind the prophecies he fulfilled. Mark's concerned with the things that Jesus did. He presents him as a man of action and power. The main theme of the book of, of, of Mark is presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant of Yahweh. You see, he's the king in Matthew, but he's the servant in Mark. He's the servant. You see, and the, the book is based not on past revelation, but on present action. The things that the Lord did and the, prominent, the dominant word in the book of Mark is the word straightway. The Greek word, which is translated straightway in many places, occurs 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. 
40 times and it emphasizes the activity of the Lord. How straightway he went from one work to another. And it presents the Lord as the servant. And of course in the faces of the cherubim, very fitting to the ox, that labouring animal, the animal that gave his life in service. So you see the, the dominant feature of Mark is that of service. You know, when we come to the Gospel of Luke, we find that the, gospel, the whole character of the book of Luke is different again. We find that Luke, as we see from the chart, wrote more particularly for Greeks. Luke, Luke was a Greek himself. He wrote particularly for the Greeks. He, he addresses his book to a, a, an individual that we will look at in a few moments, if time permits. He addresses his, his, his uh, 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 gospel to an individual who was a Greek. He's writing particularly for the Greeks. But you know, Luke presents Christ as a perfect man. It is in the Gospel of Luke that we see the man Christ Jesus. You know, 26 times in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord is referred to as the Son of Man. You know, it's interesting perhaps just to look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 47. It, it illustrates the way that these writers saw different aspects of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a little example. Luke 23 and verse 47. It's a time, of course, at the end of the Lord's life, his crucifixion. But we, we read here of the, uh, um, in verse 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the spirit. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. You know, Matthew and Mark both recall that incident. But both Matthew and Mark say that the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. But Luke records the fact that the centurion said, certainly this was a righteous man. Well, who's right? What did the centurion say? Well, it's obvious that what the centurion said was, as he beheld these things, he said, Certainly this was a righteous man. Surely he was the son of God. It's quite obvious that that's what the centurion said. Matthew and Mark take up the aspect that he said, Surely he's the son of God. But Luke, looking at the Lord as a man, said, Certainly this was a righteous man. And it illustrates, I believe, the different aspects of the Lord that these writers are looking at. To get the complete picture, we've got to put them all together. It's not that, that, that they're saying different things. It's not that one's right and one's wrong. They're, they're, they're drawing on different aspects of the same incident and presenting, emphasising as it were, a different aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there in Luke we see uh, Luke presenting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. He mentions him as the Son of Man 26 times. And so as we follow through the chart we see that the general character of the book is historical. Luke is recording, as it were, a history of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not so concerned about the fulfilled prophecies because he's writing to Greeks. He's not, you know, the practical aspect, he's not the centre of his concern. He's writing a history of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The dominant theme, as we've seen, is the Son of Man. He presents the future glory and he shows how the work of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ is for all men. And so he presents the future glory, the dominant idea, that of compassion. And 13 times in the Gospel of Luke we find compassion or mercy mentioned. Compassion toward man. Uh, we see then that the, in the symbolism it is Luke that presents the, 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 the face of the man, the human aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to royalty we had service and humanity. And then of course we come over to the Gospel of John. John, like Matthew and Luke, gives the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not a genealogy of his flesh descent. Luke's genealogy incidentally goes back to Adam and down through the line of Mary to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, showing the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John gives his genealogy 
as the origin of his character, the origin of his spiritual, uh, 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 spiritual being, his character, showing how, how that, the origin of his character was in the Word of God. John presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the Word made flesh. He was writing particularly for believers. Um, the word... Uh, um, he, he, the word believe appears in the Gospel of John over 80 times. So he's writing particularly for believers. He's presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh. He's not so concerned with the human aspect of the Lord, but it's God manifest in the flesh. The character of the book then is spiritual. He speaks about spiritual things and not so much the practical things. The theme He's presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's based not on past revelation or present action or future glory. It's based on eternity. The eternity of, uh, of, of, of the Spirit of God. That's the basis of the, the uh, narrative of John. And the dominant idea, believe. Over 80 times have we said, does the word believe appear in the Gospel of John? And in the faces of the cherubim, it answers to the eagle. That bird that rides the Spirit. And it speaks of the uh, the divine aspect of of the Lord Jesus Christ as God manifests in the flesh. And so you see, they are the different aspects that we have of the life of the Lord. But they have to all be blended together to get a complete picture of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we take the themes of these four books and put them together, it has a little message for us. It it proclaims to us that we will rule if we serve. And though we are flesh, if we overcome that flesh by the power of the word of God, we can be fitted to, to, to rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in the age to come. And each of those gospels has that little message for us as we piece them together. And so we have these four gospels that give these different aspects of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But where do we start? And how are we going to approach a study of the life of the Lord? Well, we're going to study the life of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to study it from the Gospel of Luke for three main reasons. Point number one, we believe that it is Luke that sets forth the life of the Lord in chronological sequence. Uh, Luke himself claims this in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke proclaims that he's writing in order. Now the word in order there is a different word in the Greek to the in order in verse 1. They're two entirely different words. In verse 1, it's referring to the fact that many had set forth the right narratives or histories of the life of the Lord. But here in this third verse, the word in order to the life of the Lord we're going to depart from the order set forth by Brother Robert Roberts in Nazareth Revisited. Because in the preface of Nazareth Revisited, Brother Roberts points out that he's following the order set forth in the book of Matthew. We're going to take the book of Luke because we believe it is in fact Luke that sets forth the life of the Lord in chronological sequence. So at times we will find Nazareth Revisited uh, presenting the events of the Lord's life in a different order, in a different sequence, So what we're going to consider them from the book of Luke. That in no way, of course, uh, diminishes the the book Nazareth Revisited. Nazareth Revisited is a book that we will be drawing upon much in our consideration of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to differ from it in in our approach to the order and the um, chronological order of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in regard to this, we have a, a few hints. We discussed this class recently with Brother Mansfield in, in Adelaide and he made a couple of suggestions that may be helpful to you. I'm afraid the 
transparency might be a little, little rough, but we trust that it will get the point home. Now, on the top there of the chart, we find the last verse of Luke chapter 1 and the first verse of Luke chapter 2. Now, in the following through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in chronological sequence, we find that in between the end of Luke chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 record events that fit into the chronological sequence of that point. So Brother Mansfield suggested that it's a good idea if we make some sort of a arrows or something there that points in there, you don't have to do it exactly as he's there, but you, you can devise some means of yourself to indicate a little arrow in there with, with Matthew 1 verses 18 to 25. Now when you read through the the sequence of the Lord's life in Luke chapter 1 and you come to a sign like that, it tells you that fitted in there are events that are recorded in the first of Matthew verses 18 to 25. And so you can go to Matthew and you, you, you can get the complete narrative. Um, just to give another example, you're going to find this one back to front in your Bible, you're going to have the margin down the other side. But, but nevertheless it illustrates the point. You see, here we have verses 38 and 39 of Luke chapter 2. And it reads, And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39, And when they had performed, a, performed according to the law of the Lord, I, I, it seems I may have missed a word or two out there, but anyhow, you get the point. Uh, they, they performed all things according to the law of the Lord, and it says they returned into Galilee into their own city Nazareth. But in actual fact, before they returned to their own city Nazareth, they, the, the events of Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 23 took place. The angel visits Joseph, they flee down to Egypt and then they travel up to Nazareth. Now that fits in there between those sentences in that 39th chapter, 39th verse of Luke chapter 2. So by means of some sign in the margin of your Bible, and Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 23 written there, as you read through the life of the Lord, you, you, you go to Matthew and you get the complete picture. And so, Brother Mansfield suggested that that would be a, a good way of, of marking the chronological, complete life of the Lord in chronological sequence in your Bible as we go through the uh, Gospel of Luke. Now, another suggestion that he made now that's the map which I've just copied from this book, the guidebook to the Gospels. You'll find six maps in the guidebook to the Gospels and, and these maps mark the movements of the Lord. From his birth in Bethlehem as he went up to Jerusalem and back and then the flight down to Egypt, return to Nazareth, uh, down to Jerusalem at the age of 12, um, from Nazareth back to Bethabara for his baptism, into the wilderness, up to Cana, across to Capernaum. Now you'll, you'll notice that, that each of those arrows has a number against it. And as you go on to the next map, the, the numbers will go on. The next map will start with number 7, where this finishes with number 6. And it goes right up to number 54. That is in these maps in the guidebooks of the Gospels. Now Brother Mansfield suggested that it is a very great help to, to memorising the, 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 the life of the Lord to, 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 to draw those maps up and stick them in your Bible. It doesn't actually take long to do. If you get a bit of thin white paper, you can just put them over these maps if you want to uh, and you can, you can draw around them. Uh, then on, a, on one of the blank pages at the back or front of your Bible, wherever you want, you can write an in, the numbers 1 down to 54. And against each number 1, you just write what it was, from Bethlehem to Egypt or whatever it happens to be. And, the passage, and, and then the quotes of the passages in the various Gospels that might refer to that. And then you see, if, if at any time you, you want to do so, it's very easy just to go through that sheet, follow through the numbers, and you can follow through the chronological sequence of the life of the Lord very easily. Brother Mansfield claimed that he could, he, he could get on the platform and he could give a complete chronological outline of the life of the Lord in 20 minutes by means of these maps and that sheet in the back of his Bible. So he made those suggestions that it, it, it could be a, a good idea if every one of you made a little bit of personal effort 
and and did those things and it will help you greatly in your understanding of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a, a, a ready way of being able to quickly piece together the events in the life of the Lord. And so then we come to consider the opening words of the Gospel of Luke. The Spirit chose Luke as an instrument to record the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose Luke to present the Lord Jesus Christ as a perfect man. The Spirit chooses his workmen well. I believe he doesn't choose his workmen Uh, for no reason at all. He chooses a workman that is perfectly fitted to the purpose he has in mind. You know, we read of Luke in the the epistles of Paul described as the beloved physician. Luke was a physician. To be a physician he had to have a very good understanding of man. He had to know what a man was, how a man works, how a man thinks. That was his, his, his very trade, his profession in life demanded that he understand those things. And here we find this beloved physician being chosen to present the Lord Jesus Christ as a man and to show him as a perfect man. And here was a a man whose mind would have been naturally organised to analyse the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. That would be the, 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 the way in which he'd be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find that the Spirit chooses his workmen well. But you see, he's not, only, not only did he choose him because he was a physician. I mean, there have been many physicians that the Spirit would never choose to do anything. But here was a physician that was an outstanding man in himself. You know, I believe the very man Luke, here as we see him in these first four verses of the first chapter of his Gospel, provides a tremendous exhortation to all who would set about a study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the name Luke means a light giver. He was a light giver. Luke was a Gentile convert. Some believe he was converted by the preaching of Paul. Others believe that he he, he may have been a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't really know. We're not really told much about him other than what we learn from a few passages in the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul. But Luke was a Gentile convert. But above all else, Luke was a student of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I believe the Spirit chose him. That's why the Spirit used him. Luke was not only a physician, he was an ardent student of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Spirit uses him to set forth the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect man. You know, we read um, uh, uh, Luke's words here. Uh, In verses 1 and 2 he makes reference to the many who had taken in hand to write narratives of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He speaks of the way that they had been eyewitnesses and uh, ministers of the word. But verse 3 it says, It seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And so here from these words I I believe we learn much about the man Luke. Luke says he had had perfect understanding. You know, when we look at those words, perfect understanding, the word understanding first we will look at. It's rather a long Greek word, we won't attempt to pronounce it. But Bullinger says it means to accompany side by side, to follow closely, to trace out, to examine. Whereas the word perfect there is a word which means accurately or exactly. So that the revised version, I believe more correctly, translates this statement, having traced the course of all things accurately. Now that's the testimony of Luke. He says he's traced the course of all things accurately. You know, you see Luke, as I say, was a believer, student of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Spirit used him. I'm not denying that Luke was inspired. 
I'm not trying to say that the Gospel of Luke was not written by inspiration of God. It certainly was. Luke was inspired. But I believe the Spirit used Luke because he was a natural student of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we take that word understanding. Uh, It means to accompany side by side, to follow closely, to trace out. I believe it shows us the intense interest that Luke had in himself of the events of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and how it was how he, he, he virtually in his mind relived the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke wanted to know so exactly and accurately everything that happened so that he could walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that he could accompany him. He could witness his miracles. He could listen to his teaching although he'd never perhaps been there in person. You know, I remember a, a, a very respected brother talking once. He was talking to two or three of us. He wasn't talking directly to me but I happened to be there. And he was speaking of the way that a person should approach the study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that as we go through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to build a mental picture. We've got to try and imagine the, the, the surroundings in which the things happen. We can, tell, we can picture the Lord walking along a road or whatever it happens to be. We can visualise the scenery in our mind. And we want to capture the drama of the circumstances. And he says, when you can make the, the Lord live before you like that, you will find that the Lord will draw you unto himself by his very magnetism. And I believe that we see exhibited in Luke. Luke was a man who was drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ in that way. He was so intensely interested in the life of the Lord that he accurately and exactly wanted to trace out the whole of his life from the very beginning. You know, in many of the instances, Luke gives us minute details of what happened. Take, for instance, the experiences in the, the house of Zacharias. Well, Luke wouldn't have been there. But Luke gives us minute details of what happened uh, when it came to the naming of, of, of John the Baptist. He, he gives us the details of how the people made signs under Zacharias, how he beckoned to a writing tablet, and he captures the very atmosphere of that house, and he presents it to us in the pages of his book. I believe that Luke was drawn with intense interest in the life of the Lord to seek out all these details in the life of the Lord. And then under the guy, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he was directed to write these things for our benefit. You know, Luke says in that verse 3 that he had perfect understanding or he traced the course of all things accurately from the very first. Now, from the very first. In the Greek, the word anothen. It's a word which can quite rightly be given two meanings. I believe either of those meanings fits here. It's a word which which is used in the New Testament in two ways. It's translated in such places as John chapter 3 and verse 31 as from above. That sense would fit perfectly well here. But Luke traced uh, uh, traced the course of all things accurately from above in that he was guided by the Spirit and he would have sought it out prayerfully. He would have, he would have drawn his, uh, strength from above, in, strength and guidance from above in his seeking out those things. That fits perfectly well there. But also, the word can just as easily mean from the beginning or from the very first as it is written here. As far as the actual meaning of the word goes, you can put either meaning on it. And either meaning fits perfectly the context here. Because Luke says he sought it all out from the beginning, from the very first. And it is Luke and Luke alone that records the life of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very first visit of Gabriel to the priest Zacharias in the temple and the work of preparation for the life of the Lord had begun. And Luke goes right back to the very beginning and he gives us the, complete, the, the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So either fits there. Luke was guided from above. He was divinely inspired as he wrote. But he also sought everything out from the very beginning and he gives us this, his account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning of of the work of the angel Gabriel in preparing the way 
for the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luke, so much then for the man Luke. Here's an exhortation to us. As we picture this Gentile convert, earnestly seeking out every detail of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking out every eyewitness he can find that he might get a a, a full and accurate picture of the life of the Lord. You know, as we look at the varying accounts of Matthew and Luke, the the, the two that give us details of the early life of the Lord, we find that they give us two different aspects. We believe that the, the, the source of information, both writers writing by divine inspiration, didn't necessarily have to go to any other person for, for their information. But just because they're inspired doesn't rule out the fact that they might have thought these things out for themselves. But you see, the very accounts of the early life of the Lord here give us two different aspects. I believe if we consider it, we will find that Matthew gives us Joseph's experiences in the early life of the Lord. Whereas Luke, quite pointedly, gives us Mary's experiences. And we find those two aspects coming out quite clearly through the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. You see, it is Matthew that reveals that an angel had to come to Joseph to tell him to take unto him his wife Mary. We read nothing of that in Luke, but we read of of, of Mary uh, 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 going straight to the house of Elizabeth. Uh, and, and right through these accounts we find that they would be the, 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 the viewpoints of those two uh, uh, parents, or the parent and the guardian, those two people, their experiences in the early life of the Lord. And so we see the information that these people got under guidance of the Holy Spirit may have, have originated in those two sources as they put together the, um, their accounts of those early years in the Lord's life. And so we find, going back to Luke chapter 1, that having um, described the way he traced everything out accurately, he he addresses his book, he says to, uh, uh, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. First of all, let's take the word most excellent. The words most excellent are used also in the book of Acts in a couple of places. In Acts chapter 23, Acts chapter 23 and verse 26 where we read of of a letter here that was written um, by Claudius Lysias under the governor Felix. In verse 26 he says, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor, Felix. You see, he's writing to the governor. He's giving him his title of office. Most excellent Felix. That would be the correct way of approaching such a person. We go over to Acts 26 and verse 25. And for the words of Paul here, but he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth words of truth and soberness. The same word there translated most noble. And again, Festus was a person who was in high office. And Paul was using his official title, addressing him, using his title of office. And so we see this used of this Philophius here. He was a person who was in a high position of office. And Luke is using his title as 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 a matter of normal courtesy in addressing him. Using his title, most excellent, the word, the name Theophilus, really we don't, almost don't need to be told what that means. It's a compound of two words, Theos and Philus. Theos meaning God and, and, and Philio meaning love. He was a lover of God. And so he addresses his, his gospel to uh, the, most lover, the most excellent lover of God. Now we believe that Paul was writing to a particular individual a particular individual in high office. But you know, brethren and sisters, this epistle is addressed to the whole of the household of God. You know, you go back to Psalm 16 and verse 3. In Psalm 16 and verse 3. 
we read, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is almighty light. And so you see, here's the psalmist speaking. He's speaking of the saints. He speaks of them as the excellent in whom is almighty light. And here's the saints spoken of as the excellent. You know, we go to the prophecy of Haggai. And in Haggai chapter 2, we find a verse speaking of things that are yet to happen in the future. In Haggai 2 and verse 7 we read, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of armies. You see, it's a, it's a prophetic vision of the future. The time when the Lord Jesus Christ is to return, when, when he will shake all nations, and the desire or as some versions render it, the desirable things of the nations. Or as Brother Thomas renders it, the excellencies of the nations. They shall come and I will fill this house with glory. And we know from the 43rd chapter of Ezekiel that when that house is filled with glory, that glory is manifested in the saints. It's manifested in the multitudinous body of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're described there as the excellencies of the nations. They're the kings and priests of the age to come. They will be people who have high office in the kingdom of God. And of course, every one of them is a lover of God. And so you see, when Luke addresses this gospel to most excellent Theophilus, although he is writing to a particular individual, it has a message for all the household of God because they are the excellent of all the earth. They are the ones who are being prepared for high office in the kingdom of God. And they are essentially lovers of God. And so while Luke wrote to an individual, he's really addressing this gospel message to all the most noble lovers of God. And he writes it, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The word certainty, it means a word which means firmness and stability. Something that's firm and immovable and abiding. And as we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're looking at something that is sure, something that is certain, something that is firm and stable, something that will never change, and something that should develop in us that firm conviction, that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his power to accomplish all that he has promised. But may it be, brethren and sisters, that as we try to trace the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, may it be that there may be developed in us also that love, that intense desire to be like him so that we might have that faith energised by love that can transform us and conform us to the image of the Son of God. May it be, brethren and sisters, that we may be thus changed, that we may find a place among that community of noble, God-loving people who are to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ in the age to come.